It's fine. Hi, everyone. This is Danny Haifong, and I, of course, am joined by Margaret Kimberly, co-host of The Left Lens. And so I'll let folks come on. Uh, Margaret is sharing up. Oh, we, yeah, we have a little bit of an echo. Hold on one second. Margaret, I think we have a bit of an echo on your side. Oh, I'm sorry. My fault. Go ahead. No, it's okay. All right, I'm checking. Hmm, now it's coming from me. Oh. Hold on. <laughs> it might be from me. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on with my audio. Uh, hold on one second. Okay. Oh, I know what it is. I was on YouTube at the same time. Isn't that awesome? Well, audience, as you can see, we're still working out technical kinks, but Again, this is The Left Lens, and we have a very special guest. But before we get to our very special guest, I do have a few announcements as people come into the stream. First uh, is a sad one, and I know Margaret uh, knew him very well. Uh, you know, in March, we had a great interview with Lukman Nation, and unfortunately, Abdus Baba Lukman, uh, one half of Lukman Nation, died last week, June 15th. And so it's with a very heavy heart that we announced this. And he was a very dear comrade of all of us. I never got to meet him personally. I know he was very involved in the Black Alliance for Peace. Lukman Nation was doing such incredible work and will still do such incredible work living on uh, his legacy and keeping his legacy going. He was doing this really incredible work on the situation of black men and healing trauma. That was a new addition to his work um, on Lukman Nation. And he was just a staunch anti-imperialist, black liberation stalwart. I mean, there's not enough good things to say about him, but I don't know if Margaret, if you want to say anything. I just want to say before you go actually, Margaret, that uh, below in the description of this video, you can find their Twitter page, which has both a way to support them as well as uh, information of his services if you choose to stream that i know they will be streaming his services but uh margaret i don't know if you had anything you wanted to say yeah i just wanted to add my you know condolences to jackie Lukman, who's uh lost her husband and her her partner in life her her best friend and uh they were really hitting their stride with Lukman nation and uh, as you said we had great conversation with them um, it's just, it's always such a shock. It was sudden and, uh, that always makes it harder, you know, on a, on a personal level. I always find it difficult to deal with death that comes unexpectedly. I guess all of us do, right? But, yeah. Um, uh, they were, you know, uh, he was just a, a very nice person and Jackie's a lovely person. So I uh, send my condolences to her and to Abdus's uh, entire family. And please take a look at, um, as Danny was saying, where you can uh, see their work and uh, perhaps uh, 
send some uh, support because, as we know, at times like these, families need uh, need some help. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, one of our people in the chat before I keep going uh, said, Margaret, you might be a little low in your mic. I don't know if you could go oh. to the to the little tool. Better. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. I think that is better. <laughs> Thank you. My mic was just pointed in the wrong direction. Oh, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, well, you sound a lot louder now. Um, okay, cool. Which is great. So, last announcement, because I definitely want to get to our guests before we spend too much more time. Uh, I am co-founder, co-editor of uh, a new project called Friends of Socialist China. This Saturday, we are holding a very early event for those of us who happen to be in the United States, but nevertheless, it's worth going to. It will cover poverty alleviation and as a way to celebrate uh, the Communist Party of China's 100th anniversary. We will be collaborating with Geopolitical Economy Research Group, uh, which is uh, Ronan Manitoba and uh, the great Radhika Desai, Marxist scholar and activist. She uh, helps head that. She will be moderating the event. And we have wonderful speakers talking about this from China to Nigeria. Also, our special guest, who I will announce in just a second, will also be a speaker talking about the Latin American perspective on this question. And uh, we're just going to celebrate this historic achievement. So please join us the 26th of June. You can register in the Eventbrite in the description of this video. And that will be at 9 a.m. to June 26th, 9 a.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. British time. I know 6 a.m. if you're out in California, 6 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, but please do join and register again in the link in the description. In any event, though, I want to waste no further time in introducing Camila Escalante, who is someone I've been following for quite a while. She was wonderful enough to ho ho have me on from the South, Telesor. Now she is one of the co-founders of Casaccio News, and she reports out of Bolivia, but is often traveling, giving the perspective of the left in Latin America. So with no further ado, Camila, how are you doing? It's wonderful to have you. Oh, you're muted. You're right. I did that. <laughs> no worries. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to see you guys. Yeah, no, it's really great to see you. So, well, I'm just going to keep this broad because I know you're doing a lot of work and there's a lot to cover. We probably can't cover it all in the next 45 minutes to an hour. But Latin America has been somewhat on fire. I mean, the world has been on fire with the crises, economic, pandemic, the endless wars. But... Latin America has, in the last few years alone, I mean, we've seen recently the unfortunate loss uh, by Andres Arauz uh, in Ecuador. We saw also a good, you know, positive developments, the reversal of the 2019 coup in Bolivia, which I know you covered heavily. And I know Casacha News is deeply embedded in the uh, Coca Union in Bolivia, headed by Evo Morales. And we are also seeing escalating sanctions on Nicaragua, sanctions on Venezuela continue to uh, you know, hurt the left-wing government there. And there was this whole you know, conversation of a pink tide over the last two or so decades that I think many people thought was dead. But, I, but there's been a resurgence of sorts. And nowhere is this more clear than I think in Peru, where Pedro Casillo... Uh, 
the left-wing candidate there has officially won after, I don't know, more than a week of waiting and waiting for the official results. And we know the Fujimura, uh, Fujimori, she's going to be contesting that. But I don't know where you want to begin, uh, Camilla, because I think our audience uh, really could use definitely we haven't been covering it enough i feel like a, a kind of a primer on what's going on in latin america so i'll let you start in in terms of uh, what you feel like is is appropriate and what's really on your mind right now in terms of developments there and this the state of the left and the struggle against imperialism yeah you're right at cash news we cover a whole lot of territory as has been the case um you know at my work uh, my previous work at Telesur English, I mean, you know, we're in charge of covering the entire region. So sometimes it's it's a lot to uh, to follow up on. But this week, the headline uh, for South America, at least, is the bicentennial of the Battle of Carabobo, which was um, a very important battle in Venezuela um, in Carabobo, of course, led by Simon Bolivar, um, which uh, was important because it led to um, the independence of Venezuela and the rest of the region. So um, in commemoration of that, there are a lot of major events and very important and interesting political and social leaders um, and social movements in Venezuela this week uh, for the Bicentennial Congress of the Peoples of the World. And there are some comrades of yours from the United States, too, I'm sure. Um, I've spoken to a couple of them. Danny Shaw is one of them. Um, some other people from New York. Uh, just some like great people who we've been in contact with through their uh, solidarity with Bolivia. And so this is a four-day Congress, three or four-day Congress, um, where there are about 300 delegates from five continents uh, mostly representing social movements and leftist political parties. And it's really, um, you know, it's very important to have these sorts of meetings in Venezuela, particularly right now, you know, that Venezuela is, you know, continues to be under siege. And as President Nicolas Maduro has told us, uh, as very recently, he had an interview with a journalist from Bloomberg. I don't know if you guys saw that, but um, it's been completely... Um, voiced over in English, so you can watch that in English or in Spanish. And he says that, you know, under the Biden administration, there has been virtually no change in terms of the Biden administration's foreign policy uh, towards Venezuela, specifically from the previous administration of Don Donald Trump. And, um, you know, they still continue to, the State Department, the White House continues to recognize this, you know, this figure who is no longer even an acting lawmaker or even the leader of the opposition, because there are several oppositions in Venezuela, Juan Guaido. And so nothing has concretely changed. The United States tries to claim that they'll be, you know, open to dialogue around lifting some of the economic sanctions, you know, if, if, Nicolas Maduro concedes, uh, you know, to certain demands of theirs. But of course, this is just absolutely ridiculous because we know that, you know, the only thing Venezuela is guilty of is fighting to defend its sovereignty, protecting um, its people and its own interests from U.S. interests, 
It's guilty of uh, cooperation with other uh, Global South countries. And it's guilty of um, being, you know, having an anti-imperialist government uh, that is uh, socialist and, you know, for, for maintaining those important links to the other leftist governments and other anti-imperialist governments of the region and world. So um, it's really important to have all, of, you know, this representation of social movements and leftist forces in Venezuela right now. It continues to be, I don't know, um, I think Margaret has gone. I'm not sure. Danny, have you been to Venezuela? No, I've not. Oh, neither of you have. Or no, it's actually <laughs> a, big, a deep regret. I've only, I've been to Cuba for a week, but which was incredible. But no, I've not been to Venezuela just yet. I, I really well, want to go. <laughs> it, it's been for, for a few years now. It's been very difficult to go to Venezuela. Um, you know, there are just fewer and fewer flights. Um, you know, the blockade discourages all types of businesses from engaging in any sort of economic activity with Venezuela because, you know, private companies are afraid that they themselves will be sanctioned. And this is private companies from, you know, the region. Most of the way you would get to Venezuela would normally be through, uh, you know, private air carriers that are uh, based in other Latin American countries. Uh, but you know, it also discourages European and other and other countries from from engaging in business with Venezuela as well. And so there are so few flights to get there. It's basically you know the blockade has is so far reaching in its effects that it, it's even difficult to be in solidarity with Venezuela. Um, you you basically have to buy one ticket to you know one of three cities where they actually fly con viaza flights are still allowed so you have to buy like one ticket to santo domingo dominican republic and then you have to get a second ticket to venezuela um they give you a really hard time at the airport you guys may have heard that on delegations people have you know been like interrogated and just had really ridiculous you know uh run-ins with like the the airlines themselves uh, just scrutinizing everyone for why they why they're going to Venezuela, what they're doing in Venezuela. So it's it's really difficult, and so um, it's great that to see all those people there. Um, and this is, of course, like you said, this comes at a time when you know the the continental left throughout you know at least South America is seeing um, you know a big uh, you know has kind of a hop in its step after a couple of uprisings we've seen. Um, and a couple, you know, some articulation we're seeing within the social movements and also within the establishment left, the, the you know, the political left, the more uh, mainstream leftist parties are also seeing some, you know, electoral uh, potential. And so, you know, in the case of Ecuador, a lot of people, like you said, Andres Arauz believed that um, that Arauz, who was running um, on behalf of the Citizens' Revolution, which is uh, the leftist, um, it's not a party, but um, it was it was the, the movement led by the former president, Rafael Correa. Um, most people thought he was going to win, but nevertheless, um, unfortunately, the, the neoliberal candidate, Guillermo Lasso, won there. But it did bring together a lot of forces. And I think that the people who, you know, casted a null vote or um, who maybe didn't support Arauz uh, so forcefully, I think they're beginning to realize that, you know, that having such a divided and 
fractioned left, uh, you know, has had terrible consequences in that um, they're going to have to build a much uh, broader coalition for the next elections. That being said, um, as you mentioned, Pedro Castillo uh, wasn't even within the top five in Peru uh, prior to the first round of presidential elections there. So the media hadn't covered him. A lot of people didn't really know who he was internationally. And this candidate, um, in a sea of candidates, most of which were uh, from the right wing, uh, Pedro Castillo ended up coming in first in the first round of Peru's presidential elections on April 11th. Uh, so he went forward with Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of the former uh, Alberto Fujimori, the former dictator in Peru, and those two had a runoff that was just held on June 6th. So um, in the June 6th election, of course, Pedro Castillo came out as winner, and Fujimori, who is a you know, absolute tyrant and neoliberal authoritarian by all measures, has uh, refused to concede defeat. Um, it was a very slim margin. Um, we're just talking about 50,000 votes difference. Uh, but there's the same margin that we saw um, in the previous elections in which Keiko Fujimori also lost um, against another right-wing candidate. But um, she also claimed that there was fraud in that case, but she, but she, was, she did concede that time. So, you know, they're trying to steal the election. They're trying to, you know, Keiko Fujimori and the establishment uh, in Peru, along with the right-wing media and all of their international neoliberal allies are trying to steal this election victory from the Peruvian people and their chosen candidate, Pedro Castillo. And I think, you know, the people are going to fight to defend it. And even if he takes office um, and is sworn in as he should be as president um, elected by the people, he'll be facing a very difficult time trying to govern with so many, um, you know, so many attacks from the media, you know, that characterize the entire uh, presidential election campaign. So it's going to be a fight there as well. Um, we also, um, some of the things, some of the other things that we'll be covering, uh, just to list some things, and I'll let you guys maybe ask me a question, um, you know, the, I'm in El Salvador and I, I'll be heading over to Nicaragua and that's because uh, Nicaragua is under, um, you know, accelerating, escalating attacks from the United States and the OAS because Nicaragua will be holding its own elections, uh, presidential elections in November. And it looks like the Sandinista government is likely going to be reelected uh, President Daniel Ortega is uh, the favorite to win. And um, the polls have shown this. And um, so, you know, this, the, the United States and State Department sees this as kind of, you know, an opportunity for them to try to delegitimize this electoral process. And what they don't want to do is to have two Venezuelas. You know, their entire coup efforts against Venezuela have failed to the point where they have to just uh, you know, starve and suffocate the country to death with sanctions. And that's all they can do because nobody recognizes the puppet they tried to install. Even European countries are, you know, they just call him Guaido. They just call him opposition figure. Nobody calls him, um, you know, constitutional interim 
de facto president or anything like that anymore. Everyone has just totally dropped the act. And so, um, you know, they don't want this situation to happen in Nicaragua where they have to install their own president or, or say that they don't uh, recognize uh, the Nicaraguan government. What they want to do is, you know, uh, destabilize the country through these sanctions that they're now um, imposing on figures of of the Nicaraguan government, which we know the sanctions are actually on the Nicaraguan population, not just individuals of you know high-ranking individuals of the government, um, and and they're trying to destabilize the country, and they're going to try to um, to call the the election invalid, legitimate, and they won't be recognizing the results. And we're seeing them go through all the steps right now to delegitimize the entire process. And so, um, you know, solidarity with Nicaragua and the Nicaraguan people is extremely important right now. So uh, we, Cal News, will be headed there in order to begin to cover, you know, the events of the electoral calendar um, and report what's going on there. Um, because, you know, the information in English on Latin America, as we know, has always been one-sided. And in terms of Nicaragua, the only thing you're seeing online on social media, with some exceptions, of course, Ben Norton and the Gray Zone are probably the major exception. Um, most all other sources of information on Nicaragua is going to always be in English against uh, the democratically elected popular government and against the Sandinista revolution. And they're just echoes of the State Department line. And so it's very important for just us to get on the ground there and begin to report what we see and what's really going on there. You know, you, um, uh, Camila, you mentioned uh, uh, that the Biden administration is following the uh, Trump administration policy in Venezuela, for example. But uh, Obama handed it all over to Trump uh, in Obama's last days in office, last couple of weeks he was in office. He uh, repeated that Venezuela was a security threat to the United States and should be sanctioned. Uh, Trump ramped up those sanctions, of course. But then um, uh, Biden comes in, and it's not just Venezuela, it's all over the world, where essentially the foreign policy consensus does not change. Uh, the two parties are one when it comes to asserting um, uh, America's, um, uh, I should say the U.S., <laughs> it's all America, right? Uh, U.S. hegemony over the rest of the world. Do people, uh, I, I know now that Biden's in, people see that. Was there hope uh, after Trump lost that uh, things might change? Um, I think anyone who looks at the situation realistically, um, you know, for example, we work with uh, the, the union that Evo Morales runs in, or leads in, in Bolivia and you know, we speak to political and social leaders in Bolivia. I think anyone who's been following the situation, uh, you know, for a long time knows that it's unrealistic to believe that anything can change. And the one thing that people were hopeful about was that Biden's, uh, you know, policy towards Cuba would be favorable to uh, towards the normalization of relations between the United States and Cuba, the way in which relations were to some extent normalized towards the end of Obama's administration. That was the only thing that, you know, I think anyone who realistically looks at, at the situation throughout the different administrations could hope would have happened. But that's absolutely not happening right now. Somehow Biden's uh, policy towards Latin America 
if it's even possible, um, just seems to be even more extreme um, in some senses than, um, than the administration that he worked with under Obama. And so, um, you know, it's absolutely the case that they just hand on the torch to every single administration that comes through and that there are no real changes. And this is, you know, illustrated and can be seen um, at the U.S. embassies and consulates around the world. You know, like in the case of Bolivia, for example, when there was a coup, but this would happen if there was a transition between, um, you know, an elected government and then another elected government came into power. You always see the, let's say, right-wing government comes to power, for example. Once a left-wing government is elected, they get rid of everyone and all of the embassies. They get rid of all of the ministers. They change everybody in every agency and every government um, institution because they have fundamental differences um, in, in their views of how the country should be run. There are so many ideological differences. You would never just be able to uh, leave somebody, you know, as ambassador to, um, let's say, ambassador to China, you wouldn't be able to leave necessarily the same person for very long. In most cases, you know, the left wing government wants to bring in their own people, the right wing government comes and they just uh, overturn, you know, all of those decisions, and they install their own people. In the case of the United States, I mean, it's just you just see a continuation throughout different administrations of the same people working for the Foreign Service. So the same person in the Lima embassy in Peru was um, was basically the person who worked right underneath Mike Pompeo at the State Department. And this is someone who has spent decades working in the Foreign Service, including nine years at the CIA. They worked um, just a very impressive CV at different embassies. Uh, they speak Arabic and all sorts of other languages. Um, and they had, you know, top positions at the State Department and at the White House. And now the person is stationed in Lima. They were appointed by President Trump, but they're now Biden's ambassador. And that's not going to change. I mean, in, in what way, you know, are they operating any differently under President Biden as they did under the administration of Trump? In no ways at all. I mean, they're just carrying the torch through multiple uh, I mean, these people worked under Bush, they worked under Obama. Um, so, you know, absolutely in no way does the does the U.S. foreign policy with regards to Latin America specifically change over time. It remains the same. Sometimes um, it worsens. And, you know, this siege on Nicaragua is only worsening right now. And of course, because the the OAS, which is just an extension of Washington, well, it's based in Washington, and of course, yep. run by someone who works on behalf um, of the United States government, Luis Almagro. Um, you know, he doesn't change positions. They don't. They don't ask for another leader uh, to help intervene in the in the colonies and the U.S. colonies and protectorates. They they maintain that same structure, um, and so as does the Lima cartel, which is not so active anymore. But you know, these these different extensions of the U.S. government, which are just used to attack Venezuela and attack leftist governments um, are maintained throughout all administrations. So there's absolutely no change at all whatsoever. I think it's really important for people to understand that. And I think um, our audiences are beginning to understand that more and more that, you know, what, what these uh, different agencies of the United States do, such as USAID, 
is they just take money from the U.S. government um, and they funnel them to the various organizations on the ground that will help, uh, you know, help in, in the battle to secure their interests on the ground. So we have, um, you know, young people who are, let's say, 21-year-old uh, young women, if they're trying to apply for a university program where they can learn how to do journalism in the country they live in, let's say they're here in El Salvador, um, first of all, you know, the, the level of uh, potential for opportunity and a high earning career in countries of the global south, like El Salvador, it's just very low. I mean, imagine doing the work that all of us do, the three of us do, writing, journalism, reporting, social media, and making, you know, $300 uh, a month. And that's the most you can make if, if you're lucky to be employed on that basis. Um, if they get recruited into one of these um, NGOs, one of these organizations that receives money from USAID, from the U.S. State Department, uh, they could make $3,000 a month. So they're making almost a salary that you guys should be making at a minimum there in the United States. Um, so, you know, there's so much more opportunity, but then you're surrounded by people who are, you know, pushing this pro-U.S. line, these State Department lines. Uh, you're, you're getting uh, kind of you know, ushered into certain jobs where you work with these uh, more mainstream outlets or sometimes, you know, less mainstream outlets, maybe some like think tanks or things like that, but who who continue to push that that same State Department line. And this is a great opportunity. People see it as a really great opportunity because, you know, they spend so much money on university. And where are they going to find a job like that in their country? Uh, so, I mean, it's just this entire um, network, this entire economy of pumping out, you know, jobs uh, for people, positions for people who will work in the interests of the United States against the interests of anti-imperialist governments and against the real, genuine and authentic popular movements of the country. Yeah, well, th thank you for that analysis. I mean, I, I think it's so important to hear about how this all works concretely, how the USAID and how the United mm -hmm. States really exerts its interest to reproduce uh, the neo-colonial situation in a lot of these countries that, um, you know, is being uh, really fought against. I mean, I think that's one of the themes of this resurgence of the left is there is this struggle against these neo-colonial structures, this neoliberal economic order, which all these institutions serves to reproduce. But Camilla, let's talk about the why. What, what, you know, why, why is the United States and its allies, the United States in particular, especially in Latin America and across the Americas, why is it so hell bent on subverting these left wing governments? They're, I'm getting, I'm picking up an echo. I don't know if anyone can else hear that. Uh, oh, all right. But let's get into the why. Uh, the, because it's it's a pattern everywhere and i'm sure we're going to see this in peru uh, you already said that there's going to be a, a hard-fought battle there that's going to be ongoing um the united states you know sanctions nicaragua venezuela and it seems like anytime we know that the united states was involved in the coup in brazil of dilma rousseff uh, we know it's very close to the yair bolsonaro government uh, we know, you know, across the, you know, across the continent, across the Americas that the United States is doing this. But 
what is it about this left wing movement that threatens them so much? I mean, to me, you know, Venezuela was so critical in my own political development because it was one of these one of these really radical movements that was winning something for the people in my lifetime, because I mean, I'm a child of the post Soviet era and we really haven't seen, and a lot of us haven't seen victories globally or domestically for that matter here in the United States where people's lives have improved. But when I started learning about Venezuela, it was quite clear that conditions, especially with the disgusting neoliberal austerity imposed on Venezuela prior to 1998-99, prior to Hugo Chavez's victory, that li life has really improved, at least until the sanctions rolled back a lot of the gains, uh, uh, at least economically. Um, so tell me, what is it that threatens the United States so much? And if you could just go over, I know you cover Bolivia really intensely lately, but you and Ali have been, but Molly Vargas, but if you just maybe give a kind of a broad sweeping analysis of that to give our viewers an idea of why it's so critical to defend uh, the left and the left struggle in Latin America. Well, I think you guys know just as well as I do that the United States is against a multipolar world. Uh, they want to maintain their sphere of influence, you know, their own words um, in Latin America, in the hemisphere. And uh, my good comrade, Nino Paglicia, who is a Venezuelan Canadian, in Vancouver, um, he said, he posted on Facebook and I, I tweeted it um, from my personal account. He said, my reading of geopolitics tells me that we're moving towards a multipolar world where the United States and its cronies are left behind. So much work to do and it will be done. Empires have fallen before. And I mean, this is exactly what they're afraid of. And this is exactly what's happening. Um, you know, we see different governments standing up for themselves. They're not only afraid of, you know, the, the you know, the Venezuelan and President Nicolas Maduro's um, assertion of their right to self-determination and sovereignty. Um, it, it's, it's not only that they're, and it's not only that they feel threatened by Nicaragua and the Sandinista government or the Cuban revolution or you know, Evo Morales and the, the party he leads and the, the social movements he leads. Um, it's also you know, these kind of like center leftist governments in, in Mexico, in Argentina. Then you have you know, popular candidates and candidates who are polling uh, you know, with very high numbers uh, in you know, voter intention surveys in Colombia. Uh, with Gustavo Petro, with Lula, who's going to retake power and win the elections now that he's had his political rights restored after facing lawfare in Brazil. He will inevitably uh, be supported by the social movements and the, and a huge uh, cross-section of the country and, you know, the Workers' Party and the people of Brazil will take back power from Bolsonaro once again in next year's elections. So we're seeing this all across the continent. And then at the same time, these popular parties and movements and these leftist governments are forming these very important bonds and they are engaging in uh, you know, bilateral cooperation um, and strengthening relations with the governments of Iran, of China, um, and uh, numerous other countries in the Middle East, um, in Africa, and in Asia, and this is extremely, you know, threatening to 
uh, the United States. But what's worse is that, you know, Hugo Chavez built, built up this whole um, ALBA, Bolivarian Alliance, and all these other institutions, Telesur, um, Pet the Petro Caribe program. And now, you know, Venezuela and Cuba are very close to numerous uh, governments um, in the Caribbean. This is extremely threatening to the United States because these countries in the Caribbean are not necessarily all led by people who call themselves Marxists. I mean, pro probably the only one who calls himself a Marxist is the Prime Minister of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, um, Comrade uh, Ralph Gonzalves, is probably the only one who would really call himself, you know, a, well, and, and the Prime Minister of Dominica as well, Roosevelt Skerritt. But beyond that, they would just say that they're, you know, people's governments, they're just democratic governments. Uh, but they they have repeatedly uh, rejected meddling by the United States in the region. They have repeatedly rejected interference and the threat of military intervention in and around Venezuela. And they have rejected, um, you know, the militarization, the, the different... Uh, Southcom operations that have been that have been taking place there and there in the Caribbean region, just outside Venezuela, under the pretext of you know this war against drugs, against narco trafficking, when really it's all their allies that are known narco states and narco governments. Uh, so it's just absolutely unbelievable by their own studies, of course. Um, the the DEA, the US DEA, and basically all other uh, statements and reports made by um, you know other institutions and agencies of the United States government has made it perfectly clear that the vast majority of drug interceptions uh, that they've made successfully have been on the complete opposite waters, which is the Pacific coast, not the Atlantic. So it has nothing to do with Venezuela. The largest producer and exporter of cocaine in the world is Colombia. The second is Peru. And both of those uh, are, you know, taking the, the drug dealers or the transnational criminal organizations are taking drugs up the Pacific coast, right? Towards, uh, you know, that part of Mexico and of course, San Diego and California which is not where Venezuela is. Venezuela is on the other side of the continent. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're also tracing these lines, these routes where the drugs are moving towards, and they literally, you know, the drugs are moving directly by their own charts from Colombia to Honduras, a narco state. Like all, they're going directly for, you know, all, through all of the countries which are close allies um, if not colonies, because they've completely surrendered their entire, uh, you know, their sovereignty and everything, territory in some case, um, over to the United States government. Those are the those are the the true enablers of narco trafficking, and so, um, you know, these Caribbean nations and their leaders are saying that, you know, oh, I think someone's right near a, an ambulance there. Sorry. <laughs> okay. It's getting kind of loud. Um, 
so yeah, the, these Caribbean nations are saying, you know, I don't know why you're you're meddling with trying to intervene with the internal matters in Venezuela. If there are some political um, problems, then the people of Venezuela need to sort it out themselves. They need to sort their problems out at the ballot box or internally. But this doesn't involve um, a foreign government, and it definitely doesn't involve, you know. Um, or doesn't necessitate any, require any foreign military intervention in the region. So this is exactly what they're, what they're afraid of. You know, people are standing up for themselves. Countries and their governments are beginning to stand up for themselves, even ones that aren't necessarily socialist. And they're trying to intercept that um, because they're just losing, um, you know, they're, they're, they're losing their capacity to control all of these different countries. And if you just look at what has gone on in terms of the electoral scenario in, uh, in Latin America and South America and where the polls are indicating things are going to go, we could see several governments flip, you know, from neoliberal governments back to leftist governments in, you know, in the period of a year and a half, let's say. And this is just going to be absolutely devastating for the United States. And they believe that it's just going to you know, subvert the entire continent to the influence of China and Russia. And China and Russia will just come and control all of the Americas. I mean, we can only hope. <laughs> this is what, this is what some, some people would say, you know, because of course, yep. you know, they're absolutely just having a fit because, you know, of what they call, of what the United States um, State Department, the Department of Defense, you know, Trump himself, everyone was just having an absolute, um, you know, meltdown, breakdown over so-called vaccine diplomacy. The fact that Russia and China said they were going to help all the different Latin American nations, some of which are leftist governments, sure, like Venezuela, like uh, Lucho Luis Arce in Bolivia, but others are not right wing at all, or not left wing at all. They're neoliberal governments, and they were accepting the help during, you know, immediately when vaccines started being produced and manufactured. Uh, these countries had no no choice but to accept the help of Russia and China, um, in, including these neoliberal governments. And they didn't just say they were going to help; they actually did. You know, they allowed uh, they allowed these these governments to make purchases at very low cost and they also made massive donations and they actually showed up unlike you know in the case of the COVAX mechanism um, and things like this which didn't really come in a timely matter I mean it's great that that exists but how is that going to help anyone when you know half the global north is 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 vaccinated and in the global south and Latin America it's like less than 10% of the population, right? So this is just absolutely um, devastating for them. They see China uh, engaging in these, uh, you know, these collaborative um, projects where they're, you know, helping to build infrastructure in various countries of Central and South America and the Caribbean. And they are just uh, having an absolute breakdown over that. Well, you know, it's funny, you, you mentioned the vaccines. There was a uh, last week, it was pretty funny. The U.S. Embassy in Trinidad, they actually made an announcement that um, uh, the, uh, the U.S. was sending 80 vials of vaccine <laughs> to Trinidad and Tobago. Now, the Chinese had just sent the first of 200,000 doses. 
And uh, but that's the contradiction of an empire. Um, they cannot meet people's needs, and and at this point, they can't even pretend to meet people's needs. So rather than not say anything, they made a big deal out of eighty vials. Excuse me, which was treated rightly so as a big joke. Um, but it's it's funny what you say about the. Um, it's interesting what you're saying about the threat. Uh, in answer to Danny's question, that the United States feels so threatened by left-wing governments, one of the reasons they feel threatened is they don't want people in this country to see that their lives could be better, to see that they could have governments that meet their needs. The first thing we're told, even mild reforms, is, well, that's socialism, and socialism doesn't work. Look at Venezuela. Socialism doesn't work. Uh, nobody mentions that the United States has um, declared war by other means uh, against Venezuela. Um, uh, the story, continuing story of asylum seekers at the border, uh, hardly any of them are Nicaraguan. They're from all the countries that the United States considers friends and allies and uh, countries they want to showcase, but it's Nicaragua, the country, the Central American country that the US um, hates the most that is actually doing uh, the best uh, at caring for its people. So that is part of America's fear, that people here will see that there is another way, that we don't have to live in this dog-eat-dog -dog system, have this duopoly, um, which uh, actually um, uh, two parties who support the same uh, interests so uh, I just wanted to point that out. That's an, uh, another uh, reason that the United States feels so threatened by any uh, government that actually uh, meets the needs of its people. That's why China has been targeted, because China is also an economic power um, that challenges the United States, which has a, had a goal of lifting millions of people out of poverty and did it. So um, we can see that that's another reason that the U.S. Um, uh, declares enemies uh, in the region and, in fact, around the world. That's exactly it. And so this news is coming out right now, um, obviously, in the Spanish world. And we're putting out our article on it in just, in just a, a moment's time. But um, over the weekend, when nobody was paying attention, um, we reported that uh, Cuba came out with, um, you know, the independent study that uh, verified the efficacy of the Soberana Dos, the, um, you know, their, their, vac their first vaccine, Latin America's first vaccine, showed 62% uh, efficacy in a two-dose schedule. And this is, um, it was, and, and it's going to have a much higher um, efficacy rate once the third dose, which is a booster shot, um, is, is applied. And this of course, um, a U.S. sanctioned country that has been blockaded for several decades now with the absolute minimal amount of funding um, and just, you know, so resource resource scarce. They were able able to develop this vaccine in 13 months. And today they're reporting that a three doses, a three dose uh, schedule of the Abdallah vaccine, which is another because there are five vaccines being uh, manufactured in Cuba right now, 
um, all of them undergoing clinical trials at different stages, that the Abdallah vaccine has now um, ha has now been shown to have 92.28%, so, you know, over 92% efficacy in a three-dose schedule. And this is just absolutely unbelievable, amazing news. Or Cuba will be uh, manufacturing these um, these vaccines against COVID-19 with uh, Venezuela, with Iran. Um, both of those countries uh, have participated in some of the clinical trials or will be participating um, in the clinical trials of some of these vaccines. And they will be, um, you know, the country of just over 10 million people is going to be able to vaccinate, be vaccinated in a very short amount of time, a record amount of time, because it's going, they're going to, uh, for the most part, manufacture these vaccines in the country itself, um, vaccinate the entire population, and then uh, provide uh, vaccines for other countries of the global south who have, you know, whose governments have not been able to get a hold of COVID vaccines because of the patents. Um, and, and, you know, all the different challenges, uh, you know, associated with not having any money. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is just an unbelievable uh, development. And, you know, the United States is just so heavily reliant on its, you know, propaganda arms of the mainstream media to make sure that, you know, all of these, like, very important developments are masked, that people have the access to um, a high quality uh, public health uh, services that they're able to, you know, get injured or get in a car accident and not have to pay money and get treated, you know, have the best emergency services. Uh, the United States doesn't want people to know that, um, you know, that Cuba has, you know, completely eliminated uh, illiteracy and that people have such a high you know, high level of education, which is free and, you know, post-secondary education that is such a high quality that people from all around the continent and world, uh, you know, largely from other Latin American countries, the Caribbean and Africa, go to Havana, go to Cuba to get to get a, a university education, to become doctors, um, and that and that the country provides and provides this for, you know, people from all over the world at, you know, for no cost. And so, yeah, the, the, the people of the United States are not allowed to know this, um, but the information is slowly, is slowly getting out. And so um, it's just an unbelievable, it's just an unbelievable feat uh, for the Cuban people. And hopefully that'll soon reach us, um, you know, and all the rest of the countries of Latin America that have been deprived of this, I think, you know, you, you probably saw our reporting uh, during the coup. The coup took place in November 2019 in Bolivia. And literally that same month, I don't know, within days, uh, Añez, the coup dictator, uh, you know, backed by the United States, kicked out the Cuban doctors from, from Bolivia. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro did the same. And that is just unbelievable when you look at the kind of country Bolivia is. They made huge strides um, under Evo Morales and the, the MAS government under the process of change, uh, bringing people out of 
extreme poverty and poverty, um, you know, and giving people access to crucial infrastructure, um, building roads, all these sorts of projects and social programs over the period of 14 years in which Evo Morales was in power. But unfortunately, one thing you can't do overnight is, uh, you know, increase the population of uh, doctors, qualified doctors and specialists in a country. Even if you're able to, um, you know, expand public education um, and, you know, give people more access to internet and uh, technology and, and things like that in their schools and in their homes. I mean, you're not going to just, it takes years to become a doctor and you know, you need, you need to have these specialized programs. And um, so the health, um, you know, the, the health infrastructure, the public health system in Bolivia is nowhere near what it is in, you know, you know what it should be, what it is in countries of the global North. And um, they relied very heavily on the Cuban uh, on the permanent Cuban medical missions that were stationed there in Bolivia, who were then kicked out under the coup regime for a year. And I think they've um, not been able to bring them back yet uh, because some of the doctors in Bolivia, the Bolivian doctors are from the right wing and they're threatening the government if they bring back the Bolivian doctors because they want to keep the system completely privatized um, and for profit, whereas the Cubans come and um, you know are part of the public system, and they provide a very high quality service at no cost for people. But in the areas where predominantly indigenous Bolivians live, there are no health services. There are no specialized health services. Uh, definitely nowhere near what you would need to be able to treat a severe case of COVID-19. And that's the sort of thing that Cuban doctors um, and specialists are trained to do is work in these kinds, you know, work under pandemics, work under, um, you know, these sorts of conditions where people have, uh, you know, malaria or other uh, very life-threatening serious diseases and stuff. So, um, you, you know, they kicked them out. And so it's just, it's so obvious that, that, you know, the, these kind of massive feats of socialism are seen as a huge threat to the United States and its narrative. For sure. Wow. That was a, a master class on the situation and, and on just the, this antagonism between the progress that Latin America, that the Americas has, has really been making and the uh, the response by imperialism to prevent that. And it's just so important that we realize this. I remember during the pandemic and, and we're coming to the close of our live stream. Uh, so I'll definitely uh, let you jump in, Margaret, after I, I just say a few words, I, you know, during the height of the pandemic here in the United States, New York City was the epicenter. Margaret and I are both here. And I remember just following the situation in Venezuela and how a country as, such as Venezuela sanctioned, starvation sanctions on Venezuela imposed by the United States. Yet still, the government made a commitment to pay everyone to provide health care as it had been doing ever since the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, provide health care free of cost and to really take this thing seriously to the point where Venezuela did much better than the United States with the pandemic, despite all of the limitations, all of the restrictions, all the extreme poverty that was imposed and uh, reimposed on Venezuela because of these sanctions. Still, the government and the people came together and, uh, you know, are still fighting this uh, pandemic, but have done so in, in a much better way. And it's these kind of gains, this kind of capacity 
especially uh, among the state. I think that they're sometimes in the United States and the West, there's a lot of like this anarchistic thinking, this kind of individualistic thinking where uh, there's there's just this uh, skepticism over the state. And, and in Bolivia and in Venezuela, and Ecuador, everywhere, I mean, the battle really is for power, state power, and, and what that state will look like in these particular countries and in those countries that have made more progress um, in the realm of the indigenous people, Afro uh, descendants of the continent of the Americas, the workers, the peasants, where they've made the most gains, depending on whatever country, Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, Cuba, we've seen just immense progress in terms of social uh, uplift and the well-being of people. And in places like Peru, where Peru was hit devastatingly hard by the pandemic, and I think is one of the reasons why mm -hmm. Pedro Castillo was able to have such a, 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 a larger base than I think a lot of his establishment naysayers thought, is because there is just none of this capacity. It is a neoliberal nightmare in so many ways. Be uh, the reports there were just devastating. And, and Brazil, one of the worst hit countries because the Bolsonaro government and before that, the coup government uh, just, uh, you know, ran roughshod over all of the public, uh, you know, safety net, the social uh, sectors, uh, the privatization that goes on in these countries. It, that's the struggle. And then you brought it, I think, to the place of this uh, more internationalist outlook where yeah, Russia and China are providing an alternative. And I think Latin America is one of the places where you really see it. Uh, and, you know, I'm really excited for you, Camilla, to come on to uh, the Friends of Socialist China event and talk about the Latin American perspective on poverty alleviation, because uh, there's so many connections to be had. But I'll let Margaret, if you have anything to close. And then, of course, Camilla, I'll let you have the last word after that. Well, we, we have we have fake poverty alleviation here. We had a lot of propaganda <laughs> claiming that Biden was cutting child poverty in half when no such thing was true. So we've got uh, propaganda instead of, uh, of uh, the real thing. Um, can you know that our, our work as uh, uh, left journalists is so important for and for obvious reasons. Um, the corporate media here um, parrot um, all the state talking points on Latin America, on the, on the whole world, actually. And uh, that's why it's so important that uh, Black Agenda Report exists, that uh, Calcetune News exists. Um, what would you say are, I, I know we've talked about a, a lot of, of different issues and uh, we've really spanned uh, North and South America here, but if you had to point to one thing that people in this country should be paying attention to in the near future? What would you say? I know it's a lot of things, but if you had to mention uh, uh, just one or two things that come to mind first, what would those be? Paying attention to in in our region, in Latin America. Yeah. Is that it? Um, yeah. Wow. I mean, I would say that, you know, this revival and rearticulation of the social movements of Latin America that, you know, it went through this phase in the period of Chavez and um, and uh, Kirchner and Lula and Dilma Rousseff. You know when they were when they were founding ALBA TCP, the Bolivarian Alliance, and ALBA Movimientos and all these uh, different institutions. Uh, that this you know it kind of cooled down for a little bit, but it's coming 
um, you know, that there's a, there's a huge resurgence and people are understanding that um, the enemy is neoliberalism, is capitalism, is imperialism. And, um, you know, information is just becoming, the, you know, the, the fact is just becoming way too obvious. And our job as Cass Ashman News has been to so far, you know, kind of simplify things, provide readily available information on some of the developments and things that are going on in Latin America. And, you know, in the most accessible, general way possible in English so that people can understand what's going on. But there's so many other layers that are necessary in order for people to understand what's going on. And recently, um, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, about two or three weeks ago, came out with a study that showed the ways in which uh, Janine Añez in Bolivia, under the year-long coup, you know, completely came in to ransack the, the Bolivian state for their own personal gain, but also, um, you know, in order to install this neoliberal dictatorship and these neoliberal policies that just were so starkly different from what the movement towards socialism had, you know, had in place during the previous 14 years, and that it was dire for the Bolivian economy, you know, through their analysis of the numbers of unemployment, underemployment, um, through their analysis of, um, you know, the, the different kinds of policies that were passed, the types of loans that were sought, you know, they demonstrate that the literal, literally the day the Anya's regime took power, they just wanted to completely annihilate every, every social program, every social gain, of the previous socialist government in record time. And this is exactly how all neoliberal regimes operate. And I think that, you know, on, on, on the very grassroots level, people are beginning to, to understand that it's always going to be like that with every neoliberal government, every right-wing government. And the only chance that we have um, in order to secure a different alternative is to, you know, through, you know, through these processes of electoral politics and through these different uprisings is to take popular power in every single country. And people are sharing their, their different but similar experiences across borders, indigenous, uh, indigenous groups, campesino, rural groups, uh, more like urban social movements. And so this articulation is going to be very powerful, really important, and this is exactly what Evo Morales uh, the former president of Bolivia, who is now essentially the leader of Latin America's social movements uh, in, in, in many ways, because he is a leader of a union, one of the most important and a very large union in Bolivia. And he's also someone who, you know, has a lot of years of internationalism and solidarity between different countries. So this is kind of what he's leading right now. And so this is going to be extremely interesting if you've heard, you know, the one of the reasons why we've wanted to get so many leftists elected to the presidency and to governments in Latin America is to bring back UNASUR. Well, the UNASUR headquarters in Cochabamba, Bolivia, is going to be a new headquarters for the convergence of social movements of our continent. This is really exciting. And the first, well, they kind of had a meeting in December, but then, you know, another wave of COVID came. But a big social movement gathering is going to happen in September this upcoming September. And it's just going to be uh, extremely important. And I hope that uh, 
that, you know, some organizers from the United States and from the global north are able to come and attend and do exchanges so that we can know what's going on there in the global north, how people are learning, what kind of study groups people are doing, what examples they're looking at, what the struggles look like on the ground there, and so that people can learn what things are like here. This is a very exciting development. Well, I think people here can learn from people in the rest of the world. <laughs> the left yeah. here is, uh, <laughs> needs to be in greater solidarity so that uh, we don't succumb to uh, the propaganda that I just right. described. And uh, we learn from the people who are doing the things that we need to start doing. Indeed, Absolutely. Indeed. But it has to go all ways because of course we of believe course. that revolution has to be done where you are. So we can't yep. just wait for, you know, the, the wonderful, amazing Brazilian people to overthrow <laughs> their, their fascist right. government. We have to be doing it wherever we are. And that all includes right. in the global north. Of course, yes, you know, absolutely. I don't look to the U.S. for inspiration by no means, but I do think <laughs> that this, you know, sort of exchange will be very important in the future. Of course. And I think that, you know, this Bicentennial Congress in Venezuela, for example, where I'm sure there'll be translators and different people who can kind of facilitate that communication will be, you know, extremely important. Of course. Yes. Well, we're about out of time, but I, you know, this was such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Camilla. You know, we ever, I hope everyone looks forward to everything that you are doing now and in the future. And, you know, we'll hear your remarks on the 26th um, of June for friends of socialist China. And this was a great interview. You know, uh, what you said definitely resonates as much as the movement in the United States is at this a very weak inflection point. I think it's so important that we all learn from each other because, yeah, there's so much to learn, including just uh, how much we have to learn here from uh, people abroad who are doing it in all parts of the world, but also, you know, what we need to do here in the United States in the Bell of the Empire to, um, you know, to make revolution where we are right that's what lenin said you need to fight the government that you that you are being oppressed by the you need to that's where we need to focus on and uh, we can learn so many lessons from those who are doing it elsewhere especially since the united states being the hegemon is at the root of a lot of these struggles that are happening abroad so it was really amazing to have you for you to talk i mean it was kind of unfair of us to ask you to basically give a primer on Latin America because there's so it is much unfair. every every there's too much to talk about. I know. Well, we we we're you know we're gonna be around to talk more about <laughs> it and to get more, you know, to center in more on various struggles. So thank you so much for doing that. I mean, it you know it was a great analysis. But um, you know, do you want to give a plug on the work that you're doing to to close? Well, you know, while we end this stream. Yeah, like you said, we're based in Bolivia, but I'm on the road. I'll be doing some reporting in Nicaragua. And, um, you know, we hope to to cover the upcoming elections in Nicaragua. There's some regional elections that are very important in Venezuela happening in November as well, as well as the presidential elections in Honduras, which, of course, you know, is still victim to the 2009 coup and has not been able to recover that democracy. So very important things happening this year. You can find us at Cass Ashwin News. We're pretty active on Twitter. And of course, we're also on Facebook and Patreon um, and our website, which was launched uh, just a couple of months ago, CassAshwinNews.com. 
Awesome. And uh, some of that information where you, where you can find all that information is in the description below. So uh, thanks everyone for coming. This was a great stream and you know, this is our monthly stream. We'll be back with you next month, hopefully bringing on another amazing guest. Thank you so much again, Camilla. Thank you guys. Thank you. Peace.